Good morning and welcome to the Dean's Class. Delighted to have you with us this morning. Uh, the last two weeks, we've uh, taken some time apart to discuss the pertinent and very important issue around race relations and what God uh, might be saying to us today. Uh, the first conversation with Mark Genelette, looking at the idea of justice, especially through the lens of the Old Testament prophets. And then last week, we had uh, Dr. Thomas Beaver's the senior pastor of the Star in the East Lake neighborhood of Birmingham. This week we're back in Ephesians, and I want you to know that uh, what we did the last two weeks, I hope none of you saw it simply as posturing and think, well, we've done those two classes, now we can just move on to the next thing. Uh, not at all. Uh, but we're continuing on with Ephesians because I believe that God speaks through His Word, Uh, And also, we know now that uh, the work that needs to be done concerning uh, racism and reconciliation uh, in uh, the life of our ministry uh, is going to need to be done apart from just having uh, people interviewed. Uh, So stay tuned for that. COVID is a huge impediment to that. Uh, Do you remember that? We have to deal with that as well. Uh, But nonetheless, um, that conversation certainly continues And uh, I hope that we'll have some ministry opportunities for you uh, to engage a little bit more in that kind of ministry later on. But this morning, we are going to get back into Ephesians chapter 4, where we continue our conversation around the church. And so let me uh, read for us. Uh, I hope um, we can get through the first six verses of chapter 4 this morning, but we may get farther. We'll just have to see. Further, I should say. This is page 977 in your Advent leather-bound Bible, if you have one of those. But Ephesians chapter 4, please have your Bibles open. I, therefore, that is Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, we do pray that you would speak mightily to us this morning by your word, that you not leave us to ourselves, but Lord, help us to better understand what your word says about what it means for us to be the very church of God, the body of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, three weeks ago, we talked about what the church is biblically, uh, leaning on Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones the week previous to help us understand how the Bible talks about the church. And the church is almost completely uh, in the Bible, with very few exceptions, spoken of as the gathering of God's people, the assembly of God's people around God's Word. So in the Old Testament, we see that in the book of Exodus, when the people are gathered around Sinai, around God's Word. The uh, Greek translation of the Bible, the Septuagint, uses the word ekklesia, which is translated in the New Testament as church, but in the Old Testament, we translate it as assembly. 
In the book of Acts, when Paul is preaching and the silversmiths get really upset there in Ephesus, if you remember, and it says that a riot broke out amongst the crowd, the word that they use there is ecclesia, and they weren't saying that the church broke out into a riot. They were saying the assembly of the people. But that's the word that's used. And it means the assembly of God's people around God's word. It also is spoken of in the Bible as the heavenly assembly, which we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, which reads, And God has raised us up with him, that is Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so the church is the body of Christ in the sense that, well, put that aside for a minute. Just forget the language body of Christ. But the church are those faithful here on earth and in heaven. We are part of that heavenly assembly, those of us who are putting our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, it's kind of funny uh, to say this, but what Ephesians is saying in chapter 2, verse 6, is it's answering the question, when does a Christian go to heaven? Now, most of us would answer that question by saying, well, when you die. But Paul is saying that you go to heaven the moment that you're born again, that you're actually a part of the heavenly gathering right now as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a member of the invisible church, not just the visible church, but the invisible church, which is only known to God and for those of us who come to Jesus in faith. And so that's what the church is. It's the local gathering of God's people around his word. It's not a denomination. It's not a synod. It's not a Methodist conference. It's not a diocese. It's, it's none of those things. The Bible doesn't consider any of those structures a church, even though we call them churches. That's a modern innovation, not a biblical one. It doesn't mean that they don't have value and that they're not good for anything. Of course they are, but they're not a church because they're not coming around God's Word, gathered together in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, rightly and duly administered according to Christ's ordinance. And so when Paul is speaking here in chapter 4, he's speaking to you and I as the gathering of God's people here at the Advent. And actually, you know, this is one of the things that I've thought about. You know, the Advent really is a bunch of churches under one roof. And so if you're a regular at the 730 service, that's your church. Now, you're a part of the whole as the Advent, but that really is the church being the church. Or if you go to one of the 11 o'clock services or if you go to the five, uh, that's, that's really your, your church. And so it probably wouldn't be biblical to say, well, we're many churches under the umbrella of one church, uh, but actually the Advent manifests itself in various and sundry ways throughout the week, not just Sunday, but anytime we come together around God's Word, even in small groups uh, at your home. So it would be right to say that the Advent probably has, gosh, over a hundred services every single week or a hundred congregations meeting every single week. 
And yet we do talk about this entity known as the Advent, and then certainly there's an ethos and a part of it, but um, I just want you to know that it all makes my job really hard, <laughs> and especially now in terms of COVID. Um, and, uh, and certainly has its dangers uh, because each of those congregations takes on its own ethos and has its own expectations and standards and when those aren't met, you begin to get upset. So some of you have emailed me and told me that you don't necessarily like what's happening during the streaming service. And I'm very sorry about that, but it just goes to show you that it's not necessarily your service. It turns out that you've kind of joined another church. And it is what it is, and we're doing the best that we can. But could we even say that the streaming service is a church? Biblically, it would be really hard to say that. Um, I think that at best what we can say is that those services are equipping you to be the church in your own home. And so if you're there as your family and you're gathering around God's Word, you're doing church there. It's not to say it's not edifying. It's not to say that God can't use it, but it really doesn't meet the description of what it means to be God's church. So as Paul speaks to us in Ephesians chapter 4, think of it in terms of a local congregation. Okay. So in verse 1, Paul says, therefore. Anytime the Bible says, therefore, you need to think, what is it there for? Therefore What? Well, Paul is talking about what he said in the three chapters preceding chapter 4. And you may remember that Paul has talked about the unfolding of God's plan to make for himself a people, about God electing, about Jesus redeeming, and the Spirit uh, coming and sealing you and operating in you faith which calls you to the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to be in Christ, and how it is that we're saved, and all of these really Christian fundamentals that unify us, Paul really is doing a great work of exposition where he's unfolding who God is and what he's come to do and how he operates in our lives as believers. But now he's gone from exposition when he says to says, therefore, to exhortation, where he's saying, now, with all of that in mind, what are the implications for our life? What is the implication for your life? So what? This is the application part of his, his letter. And so he begins by saying, look, I, I want to remind you uh, that I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And this harkens back to what he said in chapter 3, verse 1, where he said he was a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He's a prisoner of Christ, and he's a prisoner for Christ. He's under house arrest uh, as he writes to the Ephesians, and he wants them to know that, one, the gospel ministry is not thwarted. I mean, think about it. Most people would say, well, because I'm under house arrest, I'm really not able to do much of anything. You know, I, I'm nearing the end of Netflix, whatever it is that you're doing in COVID. Uh, but actually, Paul takes advantage of it, and his ministry from house arrest is manifesting itself even this morning here in Birmingham, Alabama. 
So he realizes that he's really not a prisoner of the Roman Empire, although technically he is. He's saying, above all, I'm a prisoner of Christ and a prisoner for Christ, and my life is captivated by God. He's given me a mission, and God's Word is not bound. And so in light of that, he says, I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, you who are not under house arrest, you who enjoy freedoms that I don't enjoy. And God is making for himself a people, which is what he's been talking about in the first three chapters. And Paul now turns to say, well, what kind of people? What does this look like in the life of a local church? Well, the first thing he says is that they are one in Christ. That they're one in Christ. The calling to which you have been called. What calling is that? A calling into a personal life-saving relationship with Jesus. That's the calling. So you're in Christ, and you're one in Christ. So not only are you reconciled to God, but you're reconciled to one another. So called into fellowship with Christ, but also called into the fellowship of his church. Secondly, the implication of this calling is that it would be a people that are set apart, a holy people, a people who are different. Now, I want to reiterate where this unity comes from that we talked about and Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about. It's not a unity of polity. That is how we structure our denominations. It's not a unity over obscure doctrinal issues. It's not a unity um, just because we're obligated to be unified. It is a very specific unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even people who say, well, I believe in Jesus, but they begin to talk about a Jesus that bears no resemblance of the Jesus in the Scriptures, we can't have unity with that person. Or I've even heard clergy say, I'm totally fine with Jesus and what he said, but I can't get along with the Apostle Paul. We can't have unity or fellowship with that person because they've set themselves over and against God's Word, and they've drawn a line in the Bible that the Bible doesn't draw, but that the human heart has, or even the nature of Christ's death. I've heard people say, well, the way Jesus died really wasn't that important. Well, golly, the Bible spends a lot of time talking about just how important it is. Going back to Ephesians chapter 1, where did we hear? Uh, what, uh, what do we uh, hear from uh, Paul? Chapter 1, verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So if someone says, I don't think blood atonement was necessary to secure our salvation, we can't have fellowship with them because they're preaching another gospel Paul elsewhere in Galatians would say, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And so that unity really is a unity in doctrine. And it's a unity where we can have disagreement. We can have disagreement over areas like baptism. 
We can have disagreement over certain areas uh, of the Lord's Supper. But we can't have a disagreement over the central tenets of the Christian faith or the things that the Bible is very clear about. And so I was thinking about this last week when I was interviewing Thomas Beavers because culturally we're very different, racially we're very different, how our churches operate are very different, an experience at the star is going to be very different from an experience at the Advent. I sort of imagined myself what it would be like to preach at the star, and I, I started to feel a little bit uncomfortable in the same way that I don't want to put words in Thomas's mouth, but may, he may feel restricted here at the Advent. If you've, I would encourage you to listen to one of his sermons. And yet, he's a dear brother in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's welcome to come into my pulpit anytime. And I'd much rather hear from him than someone that might match my culture, match my race, and match all the demographics that I'm able to tick in my own life box because he's a believer, and we're united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'd rather him preach than someone who might deliver a safe, bland, say-nothing sermon. And certainly more than, uh, what, more than someone coming in and preaching something that's just outright heretical. So that's where we find our unity, a unity in doctrine, not a unity in structure. That's the church. That's the church, especially the wider church. When we begin to get beyond the local congregation, we have those, those relationships, and that's where our unity is found. Well, how is this unity manifested in the life of the church? Well, the unity is there in Jesus Christ, as I've been saying. Look at verses 3 and 7. Verse 3 says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And verse 7 says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Now, I know we didn't get to verse 7, but I want to make the point that the unity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that has to be absolutely central and paramount. It does us no good to talk about dividing issues if we don't get that one out of the way first. So I've had people come into my office who have had complaints, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way because I don't get that many complaints. Y'all are a really lovely congregation, and you're very supportive and encouraging, and I'm not fishing for compliments here. Uh, but every once in a while, someone will come in, and I used to make the mistake of hearing them out when I should ask them in the first instance, tell me how you came to know the Lord Jesus. And if they can't tell me that, it does no good to talk about whatever it is that's bothering them in the life of our congregation. If this issue isn't sorted, all the other stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. In fact, when we come into a relationship with Christ, what is promised to us is that we actually have this unity and it gives us a spirit of generosity to, to say, you know, I don't like it, but for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to go for it. When I was in theological college in England, I attended a church called St. Ebbs, and it was largely a student church. Uh, members of the university there in Oxford would attend. 
And I would go, and I was only one of two people out of the 400 or so that were in the service that wore a jacket and tie. It was just the way I grew up. I liked it. And there was one other guy there in the congregation who was in his early 70s who wore a jacket and tie. And almost every service, we'd kind of make eye contact and nod like we were in a secret club. We were part of the subversive element of St. Ebb's to get people to wear jackets and ties. And I made the mistake of losing perspective on what's most important. And I'm so glad for this dear brother for setting me straight because at the end of a service, we met up around the coffee pot and I started complaining. I complained that it wasn't as liturgical as I would like it to be. I wish they used more of the Book of Common Prayer. I missed some of the older hymns. Uh, I thought people were just a bit too casual. And this man in his 70s uh, said, you know, I grew up in a village church, and I, I do miss the liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer, and I do miss some of the old hymns, but I look around on Sunday, and I see what God is doing, and it is marvelous in my sight. And I went away sad <laughs> and chastised because he was right. He was right. I'd lost perspective on what real unity was, not just a unity in conforming to a certain pattern of culture, whether that be through wardrobe or even in the liturgy. Of course, it's good to love those things, and, and we all will miss them from time to time if we're in a tradition other than the Anglican tradition, uh, or maybe we're in an Anglican church and we miss them. But nonetheless, what's essential? What's most important? The unity is there in Christ. But look in verse 2. I think this is key, and this is what I was getting at when I was talking about a generosity in spirit, how we deal with one another. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The word humility here is really the word lowliness. Our culture doesn't teach us to be humble or lowly. In fact, it does the opposite. I know that a lot of you travel, and uh, you travel so much that you have an elite status with certain airlines, and when they're about to board the plane, although this doesn't happen anymore, now they board it like they used to, right? They start with the back of the, tra the, the, back of the train. Would they start with the back of the plane and board those rows and work their way up. But if you've got one of those tickets that says like zone one, zone two, zone three, and you see other people crowding around the gate, you say to yourself, oh, no, no, no. And you start looking at other people's plane tickets, oh, you're zone six, please step aside. And if someone tries to get in front of you, and even the people in front of you, you assume are in a bigger, you know, are in a, in a zone after yours, even though they're probably not. It's just the way we're wired, and culture encourages that kind of stuff. But when it comes to the life of the church, do we see ourselves as lowly? I mean, the word servant in the Bible is the word for minister. And ministers are normally the worst, uh, expecting some sort of special treatment. But actually, we should be the lowliest of the low. But even as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are lowly. 
One of the most embarrassing things uh, I've ever encountered, and uh, he doesn't know I'm going to tell this story, so I'll ask his forgiveness later. But I encountered someone who I think represents many of us, the inability to see the value of others because they're different. And when Zach Hicks was called to be the canon for liturgy and music here at the Advent, someone said to me, what is somebody from Hawaii who went to school in California and who served a church in Miami, what do they know? What could they possibly teach us? That stands in direct opposition to what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4. That's haughtiness. They don't look like me. They don't dress like me. They don't talk like me. They have nothing to say to me. Well, if you're a Christian, you're in a really bad spot because the people who are speaking here, if you heard their voices, they would be from the Middle East. But the fact of the matter is God has something to say to you. And God does speak through his people. And so we're called to take on humility, to not think of ourselves, but to think of others, and to walk in lowliness and in deference to one another, and not to assume the worst, but actually to assume the best, especially if we're dealing with Christians. Because in our world, most of our relationships, not only are they not marked by humility, but they're certainly not marked by gentleness because we do expect the worst out of people. And we're not gentle with other people. My daughter, seven-year-old basketball league. We're playing a team. They're down by 20. My daughter's team's down by 20. With a minute left, it might as well have been 100 for seven-year-old girls. And with a minute left, the other team began to full-court press my daughter's team. I got really angry. And every possession with a minute left, they were rough. The full-court press, it was just unsportsmanlike, being up by 20 points. And so after the game, I made my way to the other coach's bench and I said, what in the world was that? Do you think that that, is that what you want to teach the girls on your team? And he looked at me and kind of got up in my face. He said, are you questioning my coaching? And I said, no, I'm questioning your character. I was right, but I was not gentle. <laughs> I was just trying to make a point. I, I was trying... I was more interested in being right than I was in actually caring for this person. And I don't know if they were a Christian or not, but it didn't matter. Are we gentle? I think about David when Absalom goes off and rebels against him. And Absalom deserved justice. He was dastardly in the way he behaved against his father and against God and against the people of Israel. And yet, what did David say? Deal gently with him for my sake. It's counterintuitive. And the world thinks it's crazy. But we ought to be gentle with one another because we're all really, really fragile. Even those of us 
who put on a tough exterior and try to project that, we know full and well our own fragility. And so let's deal gently with one another and with humility. Thirdly, he says, with patience. And here's why we can be patient. We can be patient because we're talking about other believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about our brothers and sisters. And if you're in a relationship with Jesus, it means that His Holy Spirit dwells within you. And we're told that the Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. Now, of course, if we have people who are claiming the name Christian, who are saying things that are over and against what the Bible has to say, we ought to say something. We ought to pull them aside. Jesus gave us this pattern in Matthew 18 where we go individually and then with another person and, if need be, before the whole congregation. So I'm not saying that you just sort of sit back and let bad things happen. But we need to understand, too, that it's not completely and totally on us. John chapter 14, verse 25. These things, Jesus said, I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring, you to, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, often this verse gets used as a proof text to say that, well, God, by the Spirit, is teaching us something new. And so we can disregard what the Bible says because God's doing a new thing. But did you hear what Jesus said? The Spirit's job is to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so if the Spirit is being discerned as saying something that is contrary to what Jesus taught or even contrary to God's Word, that's not the Spirit of God. But for those of us who are believers that have the Spirit dwelling within us, this is a promise that the Holy Spirit would lead us to a place of truth, that He's going to continue this work on our hearts that he's going to open our eyes to who we are and our great need for a Savior. And so we should all wear those signs around our neck that says, pardon our progress. We're not the finished product. We're not who God has called us to be. And we're certainly not who we once were. But in patience and humility and gentleness, Are we trusting that the Spirit is actually going to work in the heart of this dear brother and sister and bring them around to the place where they need to be? And it may be, again, that God is calling you to speak a word of truth into their lives, but understand that you can't cajole anybody into the truth. I mean, I've learned this through parenting. What you can do is pour the truth out like water and pray the Holy Spirit turns it into wine. And so we ought to be given over to patience in our relationships with those that we are in the church with. And then finally he says, bearing with one another in love. 
You know, love is the capstone of all things and is the great proof uh, of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a passage that gets read at weddings a lot, but I think is, uh, but of course, just like 1 Corinthians 13, uh, has absolutely nothing to do with marital love, uh, but is actually love that marks out Christians. But Colossians chapter 3, verse 14 says this, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The secret is love. Because you're not going to be able to be lowly, gentle, patient, and bear, one an- bear with one another without love. And so if there is disunity in the life of the church, it's almost always due to a lack of love. And so if you're having a dispute with another believer, a good question to ask yourself is, do I love that person? God, give me a heart to love this person that I might demonstrate my love for them through humility and gentleness and patience. I think sometimes it's a given, and we kind of throw words like love around all the time, and we forget it's really deep meaning or the way that the Bible speaks about love. In Greek, there are multiple words for the word love, but in English, we only have one. So in the same breath, we can say, I love tater tots, and I love my wife. There's no comparison. No comparison at all. And so I think sometimes there's an assumption in the life of the church that we just all love one another. But we never think about the implications. We never ask, well, how is that love demonstrated in the life of our church? Do I actually love this person or am I just paying lip service to God's call on my life? And if we're honest, it's the latter. We'll say to one another, I love you. But it's really not demonstrated in how we interact with one another. And if it's not demonstrated, with in, the li- by, if it's not demonstrated in the life of the church, then how in the world are we going to be able to love our neighbors as we love ourselves? I mean, the world looks at the disunity of the church and scoffs and laughs and said, well, golly, y'all are terrible to one another. You you divide and disagree over all these things that, you know, does it really matter that much? And some things really do matter that much, and the world's never going to understand that. But how is the world provoked to jealousy? Well, we read in the book of Acts that the world saw the church and how they loved one another, and that's what provoked them to jealousy. And so love binds all of this together. If there's disunity in the church, it's almost always the result of a lack of love. I'll have to move quickly now. Fourthly, or rather not fourthly, but verse four. So there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. One body. We're all parts of one body, and that body is the local church. Paul's not talking about, you know, the Diocese of Alabama is the arm 
of the body of the Episcopal Church or that the Episcopal Church is the body of the arm of the American Church and the Southern Baptist or the feet or the belly or whatever it might be. No, uh, you are all one body. And we're going to get into that when we talk about the gifts that God gives to the church and how God is able and sufficient to raise up what the church needs. He's able to create a whole body in a congregation within itself. But when he says one body, knowing that we're dwelling together, one body meaning one faith, right? That we are called and we've been made one by the Lord Jesus Christ, one spirit. It's the same spirit that has called us to faith. So the reason why I became a Christian is the same reason why you became a Christian, because the same spirit intervened in our lives. You became a Christian in the same way. Now, our stories might be different, but ultimately it's because God, by his spirit, came into our hearts and opened up our eyes and we turned to Jesus. And when he says one baptism, in verse 5, I don't think he's actually talking about water baptism. He's not talking about the outward baptism because he is making a differentiation here between the visible and the invisible church. And the word baptism doesn't just mean the act of baptism that we have, but baptism means to be enfolded into something. It's the same word that's used if a boat were to go under the waves and not come up again. It's to be submerged. It's to be completely taken in. And by baptism here, Paul is talking about how we've been taken into Jesus Christ, how we're all in the ark of refuge. We're all baptized into him. We're all in it together. And, of course, the outward symbol of that is the baptism, but it's not a baptism apart from faith. Faith is the essential component in that baptism. Well, if we are united, why is there so much disunity in the life of the church? Because it's clear here that the gift, that unity is a gift that God gives. It's a given. This is, this is what he's done. You have a unity. But Paul says you have to maintain it. Be eager to maintain that unity. Well, again, the difference between the visible church, which are those just are sort of gathered together, and the invisible church, because within the visible church, there are believers and unbelievers alike. Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the tares, all of them gathered up together. But there's a difference between the two. And so within the visible church, you're going to have disunity. And you're going to have disunity because of sin. Plain and simple. The church would be really great if it weren't for the people. So sin is going to cause division. A lack of love is going to cause division. And finally, I think what Paul is trying to drive home in all of this is if you misunderstand the nature of the church, you're not going to be unified. And you're going to fall in your own camp and you're going to rally and lobby and try to cajole to bring people around to a point of view and bind people's consciences in a way that the Bible may not. And so, God does call us to work really hard to maintain the unity. And not just the unity of denominations, but the unity of our local congregation. Do you work hard to maintain the unity of the Advent? Or are you working against the unity of the Advent? Do you eagerly long to love your brothers and your sisters in this place? 
Do you eagerly long for the unity of, of God's people outside of the advent, of, of those that we have common core commitments to? Or are you more concerned about having unity through structures? Paul says, no. You need to have a right idea of what the church is. You need to understand the nature of sin. You need to understand the visible versus the invisible church. You need to understand that love is the capstone of our unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you'll enjoy the unity of the church. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, this is your church, not ours, and we pray that you would work mightily through us. Bring our hearts to a place where we do deal with one another in humility and gentleness and patience, and above all, let us put on love, which binds us all together. Lord, that you would make us one as we are one, and that we would eagerly maintain our unity in you, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.